Welcome to a new episode of the Film at Lincoln Center podcast. This week, we're revisiting a conversation from the 60th New York Film Festival with Mia Hansen-Love on One Fine Morning, moderated by NYFF Artistic Director Dennis Lim, followed by our recent conversation with Jordan Peele, Kiki Palmer, and more on the making of Nope. Few filmmakers are as adept at exploring the contours of modern love and grief as Mia Hansen-Love, whose intensely poignant and deeply personal latest drama stars Leah Sudo as Sandra, a professional translator and single mother at a crossroads. Her father, rapidly deteriorating from a neurological illness, will soon require facility care, and her new lover is a married dad whose unavailability only seems to draw her nearer to him, despite or because of the fact that she's going through an overwhelming time in her life. Hanson Love, so finely observant of the small nuances of human interaction, creates, in harmonious concert with the magnificent Sudo, a complicated portrait of a woman torn between romantic desire and familial tragedy that is a marvel of emotional and formal economy. One Fine Morning opens next Friday, January 27th, in our theaters. Get showtimes and tickets at filmlink.org slash morning. So I'll start by maybe just picking up from your introduction where you made it sound like there was um, a kind of urgency for this film. Like, you know, because there's some films you you say you, you want to make and some films you have to make. Yeah. And this one you had to make. Yeah, I... Um, I, I, I um, well, my, my father had this disease and he was still alive when I wrote the film, but I felt he was not going to be here forever. So that was that was that me trying to I guess uh, feel his presence a little bit longer. But it was also um, it was not only about that though. It was also um, that I had also made. A, I mean, the film is also about a new birth, a new a new love, a new a, a passion, and it's about this opposite feelings and that is some something that I've experienced and I thought it was a beautiful experience actually and I wanted to try and, and capture that and I felt that if I don't do it right now at this moment I wouldn't find I mean I would lose uh, that the, the, the equity that I, I wouldn't know how to find the, the the exact feelings again and I and I really wanted to capture something that I was worried would would vanish. Can you actually talk about that idea of, of, you know, these two strands in the film, this this coming to terms with the father's decline and also the new love story, and how have you approached writing that together? I mean, I think it's I, I think the film derives its power from the the coexistence of these two things, but I'm wondering about the process of 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 writing these two, you know, these two these two narrative arcs. Well, it was. Um, one of these moment, these moments, the, where I start to want to make a film, also, or to, to feel that there is a film here that I should do, because of the emotions that uh, that haunt me, but also because I have a feeling, and maybe it's an illusion, but it's that illusion helps me move on. I have a feeling that no one told that story, and in that case. It was the fact that it was two stories, you know, but two stories that actually belong together because they communicate secretly, not that, I mean, the script doesn't try to artificially make, you know, um, bridges between the two things, but they are still, uh, to me, they are uh, secretly uh, connected because I think part of why uh, Sandra um, one needs to leave that passion has to do with the desire, the need of feeling alive. So, but I had the feeling when I started writing this that uh, most of the films were maybe telling one story or the other, but, the, but that maybe the singularity of what I had to tell was the fact that it was actually happening at the same time. And so the whole process of writing, I think, had to do with with finding the right balance between the two, these two uh, strands, as you said, but without ever creating, I, 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 it was very clear for me from the start that I would not try to create artificially um, connection in this, to dramatize this. It was just two things that were happening in the same time within uh, the character's uh, life. 
You talked about you know the starting point being your father's condition, and I think I, Mia was doing a talk earlier today. Maybe some people were there, and you talked a little bit about how your work has always been, despite regardless of what you say, it's always been read or perceived as autobiographical, and having a certain or emerging from like a, a um, you know personal connection. It sounds like this was the the that is, was quite strong in this film. It was but, maybe more frontal. Yeah, I more think it. it Sorry. Yeah, sorry. That was exactly the word. I think, like, more, just a more directly. And I'm wondering about that that process. If if you're dealing with it more frontally, then how does how does distance come into it? Because distance is always, you know, I think necessary, right? When you're when you're creating, constructing. I think actually distance, getting the distance, is somehow the goal of mm. writing it. It's maybe I don't have any distance when I write it. Maybe it's very. Especially with that film, indeed, yes, it's true that many of my films have been said to be autobiographical and they were not always or not that directly, directly autobiographical, but that one, yes, maybe is more than any of my other films. Uh, but then I actually, I, I don't, f I, I'm not sure I had any distance, to be honest, when I started writing it, but I think in a way, why I make the film to get. it to get it. And now I have more, or a little bit more, maybe, than what I about, used to. What about the shooting and the editing? Is that like an intermediate step to...? Um, well, the, 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 I, I, well as, as soon as there is actors involved, mm -hmm. and, and that's also the whole point of making films to me, and what I enjoy so much uh, about making films, is that actors bring fiction immediately, and at the end, I mean, I, I keep talking about how much autobiographical my films are, but at the end, what I enjoy really about making about making them is 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 a transforming my experience into a fiction that anybody hopefully can connect with. And I think that happens only thanks to uh, the actors and what they bring and and their presence, and they always bring the film somewhere yep. somewhere else i mean whether you want it or not because they have their own background their own history their own presence and even if they can be very look very similar sometimes with people who who, who you've known in this film in particular pascal gregory who plays the father looks uh, to me very um, close to my father when he was uh, sick but still they bring something else and that's that's what makes sense at the end, and that's why I enjoy about it. It's the, the distance that, that the function brings and that allows me to um, um, get free mm -hmm. from that story, actually. You mentioned the actors, so maybe you can say a little bit about casting. I, I think you have, um, uh, you know, we've worked with actors across the board, like from relative newcomers to like legendary actors in, in your films, and I think you have a real gift for, for casting, often because they're unexpected and I think Leia do in this film especially seems to be it's a different kind of role than we've seen her in certainly recently so I'm wondering if you can talk about some of the choices yeah I, I wrote the film with her in mind just the, just as I wrote things to come with Isabelle Huppert in mind like from the very start I thought of her um, I had seen her in many many of the films she had been and I, I thought she was an incredible actress um, I I guess I wanted to work with her, but I think one thing that I was interested in uh, while I, uh, when I gave her the script, um, or I thought that, I mean, I thought uh, that she could be seen in a different way in that film. Maybe it's not the kind of performance that, she, I mean, maybe you've seen her in films where she's more impressive in terms of performance, or um, she does, I mean, I, I think she's been extraordinary in some of the films uh, where she was, but, but here it was more about simplicity. She has a part here where she's more, more like down to earth, more real in a way, and it's really about her looking at people. Instead, she's been a lot looked at by men directors <laughs> and, and and as an object of desire it's a lot like how she's been looked at and it was very different here because she was like my alter ego and it was her listening to yeah. to her father to looking at a, a, a man she desires so it's a very uh, listening to 
my grandmother who plays in the film. You know, it's, a, it's very different, and I thought maybe that that will allow the public to see her in a different, very different, uh, in a simple role, but very different from from anything that she's been in actually. And I enjoyed, and and I really enjoyed filming her in the in in that part. Yeah. Um. I think the occupations of your characters are always significant and interesting. So if you can say a little bit about, you know, your decision to make Sandra a translator. Well, I I I uh, I think I always give um jobs to the characters of my film that I I I would want to do myself. <laughs> Like I, I, I really look at this as a kind of handicap in terms of uh, script writing that I, c I cannot uh, have them uh, do something that I wouldn't like to do, and uh, I guess if I uh, and each time I think it's the question I ask myself is if I wasn't a director, uh, scriptwriter, what could I do? And you know maybe it's one of the things that I. I would have liked to do. My father also was a translator, so maybe it's some kind of a tribute to him also. And it it was, to me, that job, uh, that she would be an interpreter, was also like in the continuity of all the rest that she's doing, that she keeps listening <laughs> to other people, and she's very restrained, you know, and that made sense to me. I'm just going to ask one more, and then maybe we'll take a couple of audience questions. Um, something you said in the talk that struck me, uh, I wrote it down, was you, you said that um, for you fiction is about creating a rhythm, um, a rhythm from the chaos of life. And I like the idea of fiction as rhythm. And I wonder if you can elaborate on that because I, I think of your films often in terms of, in those ther terms, in terms of how the films move. Well, yes. I mean, even though my films doesn't try to, don't my films don't try to be, you know, uh, entertaining in a maybe more <laughs> conventional uh, definition of it, or don't follow some of the rules that people think are very important for the scripts. And I think it's a very imp imp we could say imp impressionist, impressionist, right? Uh, impressionistic uh, uh, way of write the, the the way I, I write. But still, I mean, I, I, I do think rhythm is, is very much in the heart of it and, and the question of, of the rhythm um, is, is totally uh, crucial uh, to me. But maybe I have my own definition of a rhythm and, and, and yes, it has to do with, with uh, the trying, the, my quest for, um, for meaning, um, uh, I, I, I think just another way to put it would, would be to say that I'm trying to find the right frame. Mm -hmm. And I think, and, and that tells you about how, how big the difference is actually between life and, 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 and a film. Because people say, oh, your film is autobiographical because, because it's inspired by your father or by, by your love life or whatever. But at the end, I mean, the life is so chaotic and multiple and and only to decide what you're going to tell or not tell what you will show or not show keeping the shadow that that's thousand, that means an infinity of choices and you exclude something you choose some, you know and and at the end that's what i call give a rhythm to the chaos it actually you think it's the reality as it is but it's not it's always a reinvention of reality that's what i mean all right, we have time for maybe one or two audience questions. So if you're, yep, at the back? back okay. Yeah. You know, actually what's funny is, is that I, I didn't realize that I filmed, that I was filming people walking in film so much until I was told. <laughs> and now I make it into something like that I decided, but actually it's just the way I write without, I wasn't aware. I think it has to do so yes, it's in the scripts already, but I think it has to do with the fact that all my films are actually portraits, portraits of a character, portraits of a woman. Sometimes it's a portrait of, of a man. It's, it, it was not always a woman, but here it's a portrait of a woman and of her father maybe, but it's mostly a portrait of her. And I think in my idea of what a portrait, a cinematic, cinematographic portrait is, I need to see her walking, I need to see how she moves, I need to see in which, which pace, uh, uh, how she looks like, how she carries her bag, like how she opens a door, all, all these things that, well, if you read it from a very 
you know, um, classical point of view of what is really uh, useful in a script, you could say, well, let's just take it away. We don't need that. It doesn't help the story to progress. But actually, to me, it is important because uh, that's part of, you know, her presence. And if I want to capture the presence of that person, I need to see how she walks through the streets of Paris. I think we had a question in the front. Yeah, over there. Well, first, thank you for mentioning you're missing Paris and, and finding it in the film. I'm always surprised when somebody tells me this because what you see of Paris in that film is mostly like hospitals and <laughs> nursing homes. <laughs> I, I would not think that it's so attractive and it's always like a nice surprise to hear that. Um, and about the endings, I, I think there's two ways for me to answer that because there is the, I could answer very specifically about the actual moment, the actual second where I end the film, which is when Melville Poupeau, Clément in the film, make that gesture. And that's something that wasn't planned. It just, it just did it while I was shooting. And when I was editing, I thought it was beautiful. And I just wanted, I thought, oh, this is the right moment to end the film. But apart from that, the, the scene in general, the last scene of the film, I, and that's, that's very often the case for me. I had it from the start in mind. I mean, I think... The very idea of the film I had when I had the idea of that last scene, it's when I, I actually experienced the scene, this moment where I went, I went to see my father where he was and he actually, I filmed the, actual, the real place where my father was. This, so the last hospital you see is, is a place I know very well. And so I, I, I had, I've, I've lived that scene, but that's, and that was a very, sad moment because it made me feel extremely guilty that I was leaving him once again. He, I, I felt like I was a, a abandoning him, but at, at the same time, it was, as you see in the film, it was a happy moment too, and that's, there was, everything was there, that, that complexity of feelings, uh, this paradox, you know, of being extremely sad and very happy at the same time, and I think, but there was light, there was some happiness, and I think that's the moment that um, I thought I can make that film because I would not have been able to make that film if it had been only to deal with the tragedy of life. And because there was light here, because there was also something that opens, you know, that's, that's when I saw a film. Great. I'm afraid we're out of time, but uh, I want to thank you all for coming. And Mia, thank, thank you, you so much. Following a special 70mm screening of Nope during our Jordan Peele curated series, The Lost Rider, A Chronicle of Hollywood Sacrifice, Nope director Jordan Peele, lead Kiki Palmer, producer Ian Cooper, editor Nicholas Mansour, and composer Michael Abels joined FLC programmer Tyler Wilson to discuss the making of the sci-fi horror. Let's continue to the conversation. Okay, thank you. It's my great pleasure to welcome the film team of Nope. Um, I'll start with uh, Michael Abels, the film's composer. My, all right, Michael might be in the bathroom, but he's coming in a minute. Um, I'll, I'll move on to Nicholas Mansour, the film's editor. Ian Cooper, the producer. Emerald herself, Kiki Palmer. but not least, the writer, director, and producer, Jordan Peele. Thank you, guys. 
Thank you. Thank you. Uh, yeah, th thank you all for being with us. Thank you all for this film. Um, I have questions for all of you, and I'm sure our audience does as well. And Jordan, we obviously have a lot to talk about with this series that you curated for us around Nope. So um, let's start with this film and go from there. Um, I'll, I mean, I'll start with you. I mean, you know, with Nope and with your previous features, you've I think you've shown yourself as a, a clear lover of genre, even as your films, I think, critique and, you know, crisscross between those genres, and you always manage to, you know, I think, pull something new out of that tension. Um, I mean, with, with Nope, there's a, there's a clear, you know, there's a clear joy, but also like a sense of mischief to the ways you're playing with, you know, the conventions of, of horror, the Western, science fiction, even, I think, the, the Hollywood satire. Um, you do so in a way that I think never really alienates us, but still challenges our expectations and um, I think really asks us to think seriously about what it is we're, we're looking at and responding to. And so all that being said, I guess I, I'm curious, you know, what, what made you make in an alien invasion film as your third feature? And maybe more specifically, what was it about the UFO that seemed like the right conduit for the ideas that you wanted to explore in Nope? Well, thank you very much for all that. That um, you know, the one of the first, you know, just just to uh, you know address the sort of genre bending element of it, and the fact that it does it doesn't it resembles a lot of films, I think, but doesn't resemble quite any film. And I think early on, our our co uh, costume designer Alex Bovaird, who's an incredible. Um, incredible artist. Um, she identified in the script, she, she called it um, spectral, a spectral movie or a, uh, 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 yeah, it, it was, it was a, a spectral, that it had a, a spectrum of ideas and, and flavors in it. And a lot of that came from how the movie was made and how it was conceived. And you know, when I first when I first made Get Out, for example, you know, I knew I wasn't going to be able to have a movie that had a huge budget or anything. So I kind of, you know, I crafted a little bit of a magic trick in that way. Um, for this film, I, I had this um, wonderful privilege of feeling like I was going to get to make the movie that I, I wanted to make and to try and push those boundaries. And that opened me up to a writing process that. I think allowed the film to evolve into what it needed to be when it needed to be it. So I began writing, you know, the first notion, um, as, you, as you say, the first hook was this idea of what if I could convince an audience they're watching Close Encounters of a Third Kind, but then they realize at some point they've been watching Jaws. <laughs> and that, you know, that's obviously a very reductive way to sort of um, put it, but that that feat alone would create this entirely new experience and this entirely new film. And so that was the hook, and, 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 and I knew I wanted to make a spectacle, so you know, I've talked about this before, but I, I, I knew I wanted to make a blockbuster, something that I wouldn't have been able to make a few years earlier. And so in trying to figure out what this film was, what I was trying to say, it, I really had to go inward, and and explore my relationship to this idea of spectacle and why in, intrinsically in my uh, plot was going to be baked in this notion that I said at some point I thought I can do this thing so I, I must do it. You know, I must go that. And that, that the blinding ambition, I couldn't, I couldn't let myself off the hook. So that's why the, the satire, that's why I think the Gordian, the Jupe plot, uh, plot line um, emerges as a commentary on myself, my own career, my own trauma within the career, or feelings of um, confusion and this kind of thing. And then I'm writing it in you know, the midst of the, the George Floyd um, protests and, and the aftermath of the murder. And it was, it was very clear that you know, as, as I had wanted to do, always wanted to do, I, I needed to make a movie about black joy. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm a black horror movie maker in a lot of ways, and, and it's, it's, it's hard to pull that off always in this joyous manner. And, but I said, no, nope. <laughs> we gotta do that with this one. So that's why, you know, you have Nope is this weird, fucked up Frankenstein 
of film and things and and this amazing group of people um you know not only um got it from the very beginning but you know helped me pull off what what I for, previously thought was impossible and as you kind of mentioned your your film is also about you know the business of spectacle um and it's obvious you're obviously you know dealing with film the film industry you know in the present but you're connecting it pretty directly to you know the history of cinema itself and you know i i'm curious you know when did um and maybe this is a question for you and, and ian um like when did edward moybridge sort of figure into this film so ian gave me a book i don't remember what the book was called but in the early in the early fade you it was called <laughs> We don't know Erasure. It was called. That's called Erasure. We don't. We don't know the author of this book. <laughs> but that's okay because I think it was a long time ago. It was fair to say it was a long time ago. This juncture. And Ian producer. Uh, Ian producer. Ian Cooper is my producer. <laughs> um, and um, you know, I, I, who I would consider my closest cr creative ally and confidant. And he's really, you know, the one here who. You know, it takes the reins on on most things when I, I have to be sort of intensely focused on actors and script and and makes this movie happen. And so from and he's and you know I have the privilege. He's also one of my best friends from high school, um, and a brilliant artist in in his own right. So we have the privilege. I have the privilege of working with somebody who understands me on this core level, and uh, and so you know really brilliantly sort of identified this. Moybridge clip as something that was a, a cross section of some of the things that I was talking about, wanting to make a film about. Mm -hmm. And it was really uncanny too, because there was so much connectivity to Moybridge beyond even that that first uh, animal locomotion plate. Even the fact that Moybridge was a pioneer of sky replacement, which was what we ended up having to do in the film in terms of like creating a vast landscape where there was. Where we, where Moybridge added clouds to complete the long exposure that he couldn't have because of the cloud movement. So as we were reading this book that I cannot remember the name of, and thank, so embarrassing at Lincoln Center. <laughs> it was recorded. My parents or? are literally in this audience right now. <laughs> <laughs> but it was an, it was. I feel like a lot of times when we're working on ideas, something that we're reading or thinking about becomes to inform itself over and over again, and it becomes an indelible. Element and so I felt it felt like origin of the motion picture the notion of trickery of replacing the sky We were like, okay, this is informing us that this needs to be a, a guiding principle a lot of crossover and 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 the and the thing that really I think stood out to me of course was this realization that um, this black jockey sort of didn't have the black jockey that's on this clip there's no trail of what happened to him or who he was. And, and so it became this sort of central, uh, this focal point, the spirit of this film was this erased rider, that this idea that the very first star or what could, who could have been regarded as the very first star was, has been discarded. And that became the spirit of the Haywood lineage and this thing worth fighting for is being seen, being part, being sort of uh, participating uh, in our rightful uh, sort of place as part of the makers of dreams in this industry even. Um, and so the, that, that writer, and, and by the way, the whole concept is Otis Senior and um, you know, a character who in many ways, Kiki as Emerald is challenging, is her the father, um, who was a sort of a shite. You know, in my, my in my mind, this was you know I don't really talk about this. This was a made up story. The the lineage to this original character may or may not really be connected. The the father had a way of you know changing the truth, but the the idea is still pure that this is a. This is an icon worth um, embracing and worth and worth um, saving, and yeah. Well, Kiki, let's talk about Emerald. Um, well, first of all, congratulations on your New York Film Critics Circle Award. Um, 
The recognition is a, a no-brainer. Uh, your performance is incredible. Um, so much. So I, I'm curious, you know, how you got to this point to turning Emerald into this flesh and blood character. I mean, how did Jordan, you know, describe this character to you? How did you, I mean, you know, what did you respond to about Emerald when you first learned of the project? Or how did you react to the story, you know, in general? Yeah, um, I, it was all very natural. You know, he called me. He said, you know, I want to share this with you. You know, kind of, you know, lightly told me what the project was about. He didn't over push it, but he said, you know, I want you to check out the script um, and check out this character. Um, and I was just like so excited to to obviously read it. And once I did, I, I thought I kind of knew where the movie was going. You know, you have, you know, kind of, you know, okay, this brother, he's brooding. And then, okay, I'm kind of the jokester. And I, I thought I knew where the movie was going from that point. Uh, but as he so well put it, it is a bit of a Frankenstein. And I saw that my character was so much more than what would usually be on the surface structure for, uh, you know, any character's archetype. Um, and that's when I started really getting into the knowledge, but also the originality of who, you know, what makes Jordan Peele, Jordan Peele as a, as a storyteller, as a director, as an artist, um, because it was all so intentional, um, what he was doing. And uh, kind of the research that I was doing on the character with him was about all of those different things that he put in her um, and what they represented at different times and how they tied into the storyline as a whole. And so we would just have these conversations and, you know, sometimes it would be totally about script and then sometimes they would be about his inspirations or sometimes they'd be about me, you know what I mean? And, and, and how I connect to, to, to film as an actor and uh, my process of finding my own journey with this character that I can then inform him about. Um, so it was a very personal, intimate relationship that he was open to having with me that I think helped me to define who Emerald was. Um, and, and he helped me to define her with him, which was a really cool and unique experience. Um, and then the journey of it for me was, it was, it was as, as it always is. I was extremely open and ready to be transformed. And Emerald is a character that I never have gotten a chance to play. It may have had elements of things that I could have tapped into before, but never did I have the opportunity to transition in a character over the course of a film the way that I was able to do with Emerald. I don't think that kind of character is really that common in general, let alone a, fa a black female. So for me, that was the greatest challenge and the most exciting part was being able to bridge uh, those different beats of transformation in one movie. Jordan, I'm, I'm curious you know, how you approach you know, character building and, and world building you know, in your writing and in your directing. I mean, I think your, your grasp on you know, mysteries in general is so calculated, and I think it, it, that has made, I think, fans of this film and your other films very eager to pull your film apart yeah. uh, and sort of embrace those ambiguities and, and form their own theories. And so I'm curious, you know, how much, um, you know, I'm not asking for necessarily explanations to things, but how much you know, backstory do you give to your characters and, and to the alien um, when, you know, you're in the writing stage? And is there a lot of subtraction afterward or do you withhold a lot of information, you know, before the film gets in the hands of your other collaborators? Yeah, I mean, you're, you're kind of building um, these characters with, with everyone, primarily your actors, who at some point you um, really hope are, uh, and want to become the expert on your characters, know them even better than you, so you can ask them how they want to react. But from the beginning to the end of the process, I think the, the, the story and the characters are being crafted. Um, my, Michael has a big part in character and, and understanding um, how we're meant to feel. You know, when we're... When OJ has just seen the UFO for the first time and he comes back and, and Emerald is like, you know, what happened? You know, Michael transitions into this, this wonderful, um, magical, eerie, almost Amblin thing for a moment where all of a sudden you're, the childhood... Um, the childhood view of UFOs is alive, and you feel this, this brother and sister bond. Um, and then you know, I've got, you've got Nick down here, who um, you know is just one of the the very very great editors. And you know what what we're doing in the in the post phase is just 
you know, absolutely obsessing over these characters. I'd say they begin in some way to crack them. I have to understand who I am in the character. And, when I, and that's the bond that I can have with someone like Kiki. And I think when we started talking about Emerald, we're talking about, in terms of myself, we're talking about you know, the, the part of me that was on Key and Peele, the part of me that decided to be, that had to be uh, out in front of it all, you know, and wanted that attention. And so that's, that's the, the, yeah, we, we, we were both, you know, I was a child actor. I was not a child star, but we sort of like, <laughs> we went through, you know, coming up through, un, you know, selling yourself in a way as part of your identity is a, very, is a real challenge I think we bonded on. Absolutely, absolutely. It, it, it was the most coolest experience. There will be moments where we're going through different parts of this script, um, this story, you know, from when we first rehearsed to when we were actually on set or to when we had an idea that happened that morning. And I would be listening, my head would be down, I'd be listening to what Jordan's saying. I'm like, man, this is deep. And I look up and just one little tear would be falling. I'm like, man, this brother's deep. You know what I mean? We're here. I, will, I will cry when I, I am not afraid to cry as a and, director. And he's chill. He'll be like, you know, and that's what happens. Tears are falling. You're like, are you all right? You know what I mean? But he keeps going, and he's like, yeah, yeah, so that's the thing. And then he just walks out. Uh, well, you mentioned, uh, Michael, let's turn to, to the score, which I think is so important in, I think, orchestrating the film's tonal shifts, um, moving from horror to, in, in one scene, to the evoking the Western in another, and so on. And, but it's also, it, it's so carefully measured and how it builds dread over the course of the film. So I, I'm, you know, this is your third time working with Jordan. I'm curious if you can just talk about um, your initial conversations about the film, what you sort of wanted. And kaleidoscopic, that was the word. It wasn't spectral, it was kaleidoscopic. That was, and it describes your... I wasn't gonna remind that later. you. I was gonna let you remember. <laughs> yeah, I'm curious if you, if you want to talk about, um, you know, yeah, your, your early conversations, if you had sort of creative reference points as well? Well, he's, uh, Jordan's been great about uh, letting me read the script when he feels ready to share it. And uh, it's really great that you feel like you're the first, one of the first eyes on something really special. Um, and he's also, he really seeks feedback from people that he, you know, he, I, it, the feedback I think is something that feeds his creative process. Um, but I, um, and I, I feel like, I, first thing is I really want, because he's so interested in different genres, I'm really, in, I'm really wanting to step up to wherever, whatever he wants to do with that genre. And I think in your introduction, you were great about saying, but some of it is loving and some of it is satirical, some of it's biting. And, the, and music can really attenuate how that's perceived. And so I always want to make sure that, um, we, we talk a lot about, you know, how much of it is satire or, how, you know, just what percentage of, of homage and parody and all these different things should be in the music. And that affects our conversations a lot. And, um, and also with this film and there being there certain parts of the music that are, are horror or suspenseful and tense. And there's some that are Western and very much old school West classic Western. There's... Um, parts of the score that are an action-adventure, finally, when we get to it. And it's, imp it's important that all those things feel like they, that they all have a place that they meet. You know? And there's also there, there's really the relationship of OJ and Emerald and how, um, how warm and familial and the representation of their heritage. And the, and the music helps us feel that bond between them even when uh, you know, externally, it looks like they're not getting along, and so we we talk a lot about those um, about those dynamics, and and so at that point, then he and he doesn't tell me I want to hear this really in a in a in a really in a in a music way, because he's really good about in, inspire about giving you instructions that inspire you to do whatever your best work is. Man, that's so true. Right? It's really a hard <laughs> skill, but he does it really yeah, well. Yeah, he does it really well. So, and sometimes that's really, a really, and it can come in the form of something, now I should give examples, and I don't know if I'm going to be able to, but um, it can be really 
heady, like the way I've just been explaining it, or it can be a joke <laughs> of, of something. Uh, I can't think of one from Nope right now, but one from Get Out, there's a scene where um, there's a video. Uh, and actually, uh, one of the things I enjoy doing is the, sor is the source music. A lot of times I'll do the source music for Jordan's films because it's an inside joke for all of us. Um, and so I did, the, there's a, in this very, very tragically made video, there's tragic music to the video that's mm -hmm. been added. And that's actually the theme from Get Out, but done in a very happy, nice way that you would never notice it. And, but before I did it, Jordan just says, it has to sound like a really bad ED commercial. <laughs> <laughs> And for whatever reason, I thought I was the, I thought I was the right, I thought I, I knew what that should sound like. So, but, but that's the example of the feedback he gives you that as an artist will inspire you. Because you can take, how, how many ways can you take that? And yet, you feel like you know exactly what to do. So for each, for each of the genres, um, sometimes he would give me a hilarious example of something that the, and sometimes he speaks in terms of what the audience is supposed to be feeling. And that's a thing he does that's unique among directors I've worked with, where he doesn't just say, the character's feeling this. He'll say, this is the point where the audience should be saying, and suddenly I see, uh, he embodies every moviegoer you've ever seen and what they should be saying in their mind. They, they'll be saying, oh no, you shouldn't do, be, be doing that, or what's going on here? He knows exactly what, the, what he wants the audience to be feeling. And so therefore, I understand what my you know, that we're all, all of us are on the same you know, field to deliver an experience for the audience. And he's really good about helping me see what each scene and what each moment is designed to do for the audience experience. This thing about, I mean, the trusting your collaborators and, you know, like a lot of people think that film is about, you know, the director's vision means that they know what the movie is going to look like. And that's kind of like a false lead, you know. Um, I, I, because it, it, it's not that. You, you know what you need out of the film. You know what the, you want the audience to feel. You know what you want them to experience. But I think when it's really working, when you're really making a great movie, you're, you're putting a lot of trust in these, these fine people that you've gathered. Um, Hoyte von Hoytema, um, the great um, cinematographer who uh, unfortunately can't be here tonight. But um, yeah. <laughs> just extended what was possible in film, what was possible for um, me to do in film, what was possible for me to uh, um, conceive of. And, you know, you realize when you're making a movie, you're trying to capture a feeling, like I said, but you, you, it's, not even, it's not even... The movie you're trying to make isn't something you can conceive of. If you're really putting, you know, if you're really getting the people together that are uh, going to watch your back and are going to be doing their best work that they've ever done. Um, you know, with, when I'm working with Nick, for example, you know, we, uh, there's my, my, my principle of, of working is essentially that I feel like, I have to feel like there's not one movie here, that there's an infinite amount of movies here. And there's an infinite amount of ways to get it wrong, too. But that, you know, the idea that there's one movie here is, is very limiting. And we'll, we end up finding one movie. But the pathway to get there um, you know, involves um, a lot of, for example, him going on, on fantastical <laughs> uh, editing explorations. Yeah, I'm, well, I'm, I'm curious how... That may come back into a circle, and then we're back in square one. <laughs> But we've learned something. And so anyway, I, I just want to highlight because the amount of work that Nick does is tremendous. And you, you see it all here. But the, all the, the work that you don't see is also on a different level of what he's sort of sifted through and figured out for me. Yeah. I, I'm, Nick, Nick I'm, I'm curious like how you worked with Jordan on the edit and, and like how you sort of saw the writing phase carry into that stage of the production. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm just curious, you know, what kind of challenges you were sort of faced with as the edit, as the editor, and you know, sort of what new ideas you might have sort of discovered at that, you know, stage of the production. Yeah, um, well, the, it's uh, it's 
really fun to talk about it with you guys all here because it's um, it it is I think like everybody says working with Jordan on a on one of his movies is pretty unlike any other movie. I mean, there's all all the same technical stuff applies, but creatively, it's uh, I I I truly mean it. It's not just because you're sitting here, but um, that um you know it's. It's the most creatively rewarding, and yet it's like um, it's because you know you're safe in an environment and with a with an idea and with a set of creative with a creative vision that will you know it's going somewhere great the whole time, but you're free to pitch <laughs> many things and um, and uh, you know I'm trying to get I'm trying, always trying to get on the inside of what is inspiring the decisions for everybody, for the actors, for Jordan, for the set designers, for to understand the logic, because editing is a weird thing where film is so much more than what you can describe it, as anybody who's tried to write or read a film review knows. You know, you can't quite pin down what's great or bad about something in words. And yet, that's what you have to do when you're working with somebody is you kind of have... So we have this other language where we can just throw ideas back and forth. And as long as somebody... As long as you trust each other enough, I guess, there's the, there is that freedom where you get to go down a lot of experimental avenues. And sometimes, you know, you just learn, well, that's my impulse and that's not relevant here. Or um, that is relevant because you can triangulate the good idea that's right through five wrong ideas and um and that takes trust and time and energy but uh is so much fun because yeah i like i mean i don't know if it's how you think about it but i, I feel like it's such a treat to work on something where it's alive the whole time where there wasn't just this idea that was perfect in a director or filmmaker's head and then everything's just a series of disappointments as it's not perfect after that. <laughs> like, oh, that actor didn't quite say that the way I wanted or that. But instead that it's an idea that then gets made alive by all the contributions. And then it's alive the whole time and we're just, we're, you know, <laughs> feeding it and watering it and like, you know, trying to not get swallowed by it. And it's a, <laughs> it's a great process where you get to, in a way, sort of, it's like being in a writer's room, kind of, the edit room, I feel like, um, where you get to pitch ideas in a way, and yet you also have this very concrete thing in the footage that, that tells you what it wants to be in a lot of ways. So um, almost like adapting something where you have this source material and then you're... Anyway, it's just an incredibly creative process that if somebody is... If somebody like Jordan is confident enough in their ideas that they can... Some people get very swayed if you show them something, then they get confused and they're not sure. Jordan, you can show him anything, and he's like, no. <laughs> or, oh, well, that's not it, but now I can think of another thing that maybe is it. And so it feels like, um, yeah, it's, you know, it obviously is more work than painting by numbers, but I don't think anybody who really wants to be involved in something, you know, that you feel is important or really interesting, that that isn't the way you do that, so. It's also rarely no. That's the yeah. best, one of the best parts of the process is that even if you've created something you spent all weekend making and then you show us, it's so rare that it's just like, mm, it's like it gets digested it gets discussed it gets broken apart it gets reborn in other iterations of exploration i think that's the part that's mind-blowing to watch happen you know that's cool like, like michael said too like the joke is like often part of it where like we f we find so things many. through the humor a lot of the time um oh, yeah. Would, yeah yeah i um it i, I love movies and <laughs> Man, I love movies, bro. <laughs> what happened? No, um, I think I think that you know. I think that uh, I I truly believe something that may not be true, but uh, you know, I believe that a, a single person can make a really great piece of art. But I do believe the old Obamaism, I guess. That we're, uh, what we can do together <laughs> is, uh, is greater than what we can do alone. 
<laughs> and, <laughs> they, uh, see, I mean, no, uh, <laughs> I was lame, right? No, um, the, uh, <laughs> um, but, uh, but no, it's, it's true, you know, I mean, you know, you can, uh, I, I, I can write a script, but when, all of a sudden, when you add all of these people who are masters of their craft to that script, you have something completely tra transcendent. You have a, 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 an illusion that can, you know, that people who have, have people seen this film before? Is anyone, anyone? Yeah, I mean, look, people coming back to see the same film um, because they were taken somewhere and, and whether they liked where they were taken or not, because <laughs> some parts of the movie are uncomfortable and disorienting, but you know, we, we come back for this, this thing that is impossible for somebody to make. And it is impossible for somebody to make that. You need, you need 100 people you know, to do something like that. And, and that's why I love moving. That's why I could never, you know, I, I was, I've always been fascinated with film is because it's, it's, it's the collection of everybody's dream come true in, in a way. You hope in, their, in that process. I mean, and I think this film is um, an absolute testament to the industry and the film's uh, capacity for uh, collaboration. Um, I mean, I, we're running short on time, but I do want to kind of touch on the series that you have curated around this film. Um, and I'm curious about, you know, the films that you have selected were these films that you had um, your crew here, you know, watch in anticipation? Are you, did, are, are you all familiar with, with this, the, the films? Did you watch any? You know, we, the, there's, there's several of these films that have probably been referenced in several moments. Certainly, um, certainly with each of these collaborators, there's a different level of um, understanding the, what this list is about. Um, and what we did watch with the, the crew, we watched King Kong um, before the film. And King Kong was, I, it, it was something where I wanted to show the crew um, a film that was just of the utmost um, technical um, fuck, awe. Just unbelievable. You know, when I sat down to watch the film, I was just amazed because I was thinking about being as being ambitious technically and thinking in terms of this this groundbreaking movie and just trying to replicate what they did now to me seems impossible and so that was inspiring so I wanted to inspire the crew but also it is so very much about this idea of selling spectacle it's about movie making it's about and and it is marred with this um, very this ex exploitative and offensive take on exotic masculinity, and 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 these this <laughs> this tribe, um, and so the movie is uh, uh, just a, a masterpiece spectacle um, about and of exploitation in itself, and so in many ways it's a spirit spirit animal. Uh, no pun intended. Well, you, you also selected uh, quite a few Corey Feldman films. And I'm curious um, uh, with your motivation behind that, but especially on this final film, The Birthday, which, as far as we're aware, has not really seen a U.S. Threat, uh, theatrical premiere. I'm curious to know how, how you guys saw it. We went to Corey Feldman's house. <laughs> that and did happen. And, he showed, and, and uh, I had invited him to this, uh, to see Nope, to the premiere. And part of the, the connection, it, it, it's hard for me to truly put into words, but you, you probably already understand some of it. And, and it does in many ways connect to this idea of the vanishing spectacle and this lineage of the, uh, the writer in Hollywood. And you know how I get from that original black jockey to Corey Feldman, you know, teen icon, white teen icon, um, uh, at, at this very specific time, who then made this film that we saw, which we thought was extremely magnetic, extremely cinematic, a real what the fuck did I just watch film? 
starring Corey Feldman from 2004 that never came out. This missing film. And so, you know, realizing how much, once again, how much intrinsic DNA this film shares with mine, um, I, I built a little bit of a run to tell that story uh, of the missing jockey, <laughs> in part through Corey. Um, we have some time for audience questions. Um, can take your question right here. I think we have a microphone, so just hold your question for a minute. Hi. Um, first of all, like congratulations to all of the crew. Like I love this movie so much. Um, my question was about sort of the design of Jean Jacket, because, like, like you said, it starts out with this like very stereotypical UFO, and it's sort of looming in the background, like almost like kaiju esque, where it's like you dread when it comes on. But then by the end of the film, where it sort of unfurls and you see it in all its glory, like. To me, I didn't find that scary at all. I found it kind of beautiful. So I didn't know if that was something that like, you intended to do, where like, I should be dreading this and I'm like, misreading it, or like, I was just wondering how you came up with that, how you came to that final design. You are Jean Jacket's perfect prey. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when I was the, originally conceiving the, the, the animal, you know, really trying to... Uh, you know, do all the things that you know we don't see enough in these movies, where you try and conceive of something we we're not necessarily picturing when we picture uh, an alien. And 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 one of the first places I went was underwater, which you know of, of course isn't isn't completely novel in itself. But you know, I was looking at the properties of these animals that are able to. Um, exist in a sort of three-dimensional experience like that, the way Jean Jacket would fly throughout space and exist in that space and say, okay, we've got something that um, relates to air the way so many creatures we know relates to water. And so animals like the cuttlefish um, on, on, on planet Earth, the, the peacock, there's certain animals that use mesmerization as a primary um, tool. And so Jean Jacket, from the very beginning, um, we knew um, and um, had and many amazing artists um, working on Jean Jacket. But from the very beginning, you know, I knew it had to be a, a creature that was a vision and that you can't look away from and, 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 and it's got you when, it, when you do, when you do look at it. Um, we can really just take one more question. Um, go right there. Uh, hello. Um, uh, thank you for that movie, by the way. That was uh, an incredible film. Um, so a lot of people say that each movie, a lot of filmmakers say that each movie that they make is like a lesson. So, um, you know, s from someone who uh, came from like, you know, comedy and screenwriting, what have you learned um, through the making of each of your films uh, and especially Nope? Like what are some lessons that you've learned through that process? Wow, that's deep. <laughs> what have I learned, man? <sighs> you know, the, I'm, I'm, it's a great question. I'm, 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 I'm going a lot th uh, through this process right now as I try to figure out what the next project is. And, you know, I, I think one thing that you know, I've learned about myself, just to be real and vulnerable with this group. This stays in the room, right? <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> no, I, I think that, um, <laughs> no, no. <laughs> um, you know, I think as um, my uh, life develops in this amazing direction where so many of my dreams have come true, you know, I have to continue to push at um, ways of understanding myself and, and um, challenging myself. This breakthrough that I was talking about here where I realized in this really big way, oh, every character has to be, uh, has, has to somehow be, uh, represent a, fl a flaw in myself that I see in myself and kind of work through that. The, the, the personal nature of a film um, was, uh, you know, this was my mo most personal film so far. 
and and so I feel like I have to kind of continue with that that uh, that instinct to um, you know ask myself tough questions. Thank you, everyone. Uh, we have a. Another sold-out 9 p.m. screening that's supposed to start right now. Oh. So, uh, all right, everyone. That's all we have time for. We gotta go. But thank you all so much.